Hello, everybody. Welcome to Five Hole Fantasy Hockey. I'll be your host today, TJ Branson, flying solo. Zach is at work. Today, we're going to be talking advanced stats and how to kind of how to translate them towards fantasy hockey. And we're going to be talking to Charlie O'Connor. He writes for The Athletic. He covers the Flyers, our favorite team, as you might know. I'm sure we keep it uh, very close to the chest. But he also is a giant proponent of advanced stats. He uses them a lot in his writings. I think you guys should check him out. Uh, I'm doing this after the interview. He did say that there is a 90-day free trial of The Athletic that I suggest everybody hops on. I've been a subscriber to The Athletic for two years now, three years now. And I mean, I think it's like four some odd dollars a month too. And and you get like 100 articles every month, probably even more. But it's totally worth it. And Charlie's going to hop on. He's going to tell you guys all about that. We had a great conversation about advanced stats, and we're trying to gear it towards fantasy hockey and what what kind of advanced stats we should actually be looking at when we're talking about fantasy hockey, whether or not Corsi is important, whether or not on a shooting percentage, that kind of thing, and what you should look for when kind of trying to key in on breakouts and stuff like that. So without further ado, let's get this going and start talking to Charlie. All right, guys, we are joined with Charlie O'Connor. You can find him at charlieo underscore con on Twitter. He's a lead Flyers writer at The Athletic, co-host on BSH Radio. You guys cover the ice sport and the hockey team, the Flyers, with uh, with Hanks, with Bill, with Steph, all great people. I got to tell you a little anecdote real quick. Um, when we, and I say we, me and my co-host who couldn't make it tonight, we found your podcast. Um, we both work in a kitchen, and I think <laughs> it might have been like, halfway through one of the seasons i'm talking like two or three years ago we went on a binge we listened to just about every episode you guys had out we were um, just enthralled so i mean it was it's good work so no need for ogs i hope not but uh yeah dude we enjoy that pod thoroughly you guys picked up a couple i think hyperbole is on there too and um there might be another i'm forgetting but um yeah man uh the floor is yours plug anything you guys are working on Sure. So, I mean, I guess the big thing I'll say with regards to BSH Radio is that we're still recording on a regular basis, even though there's no hockey going on. Um, you know, we have our, our flagship show, BSH, BSH Radio. You mentioned Flyperbole, which is um, Craig and Steve. They do a great job with the combination of like humor and then some analysis and then some more humor. It's a cool thing. Um, and then we have some other new shows that we've brought out You know, because there's no hockey. Kelly's basically interviewing random people. I have a music and movie show I started. So, just because there's no hockey, no reason not to keep listening to us. We're pumping out the content. And then, obviously, I'm still putting out articles on a weekly basis on um, on theathletic.com. So uh, I'll plug that. You know, we uh, we have a 90-day free trial, uh, primarily because of everything that's going on in the world and how a lot of people, understandably, aren't exactly doing the best financially right now. Um, so if you're interested in checking out, you know, the content, but uh, you can't really justify uh, spending that kind of money this time, try out the free trial and, you know, maybe, maybe we'll convince you to, to budget it. If not, that's fine. Just cancel before it's over. and It's all good. But uh, that's something we're offering. And I, I think I'm averaging probably about two or three articles a week. Still, I have an article tomorrow coming out. I interviewed uh, Brian Boucher earlier today. Oh, right on. Yes. Yeah. Cause they're, they're replaying the um, game four of the 2010 uh, Boston series tomorrow on BC sports network. Um, so I interviewed him to talk about the game and then also asked him some questions about, you know, his thoughts on Carter Hart, his thoughts on this Flyers team. So uh, just, a, you know, it's just a Q&A, but a, 
I think he gave some cool answers, and he's a, a great guy. So uh, that'll be out tomorrow if you're interested in checking out some new content on theathletic.com. You know, your your music and movie, I haven't given it a shot yet, but I know just from Twitter that you and I have kind of a, a like mind when it comes to music. <laughs> so I'm going to say it's good. That's just my opinion. Everybody else out there kind of has their own view on what good music is. But, you know, at least I think Charlie has good taste in music. So thank you. Appreciate that. Our plan today is we're going to dive a little bit further into advanced stats. And I say further uh, because we we had an episode earlier this week where we dove into kind of just defining and trying to get our heads around what these advanced stats mean. And if, if you want to, you know, give um, your view on that too, that would be great. We're going to try as best as we can. I know, Charlie, you might not be as big of a, a fantasy guy as me or maybe our listeners, but we're, I'm going to try and like kind of lead the questions in a way that might Give our fantasy listeners something to to look forward to. So we're going to start out with Corsi and Fenwick. From what I gather, the kind of the easiest definition you can get is shot attempts and unblocked shot attempts, respectively there. My critique has often been that Corsi just kind of seems like the plus minus of shots on goals or shot attempts anyway. Is that accurate or am I am I just kind of dumbing it down too much? No, I, I think that is pretty much accurate, at least if you're talking about just Corsi and Fenwick in their most raw form but I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily a bad thing you know when you're looking at these kind of stats you have to have a very basic baseline you know from which you can build more complex and more revealing stats and you know the fact that Corsi is just basically shot attempts plus minus I, I think that's important because these more complex numbers that come from stats like Corsi and Fenwick they have to have you know an easy to understand base. And that is the easy to understand base because like the whole reason why people that are, that, that believe in advanced stats, for example, would say that Corsi is better than like goals plus minus, which is obviously the, uh, you know, kind of the, the traditional stat when you're talking about a plus minus stat is just because shots happen more than goals. The whole concept of, of Corsi and why it's valuable at its core is that, you know, a guy could, spend the entire game stuck in the defensive zone and the other team's taken tons of quality shots, you know, 20, 20 quality shots when he's on the ice in that game. But the goalie behind him had an incredible game, stopped everything. And then, you know, with two minutes left in the third period, somebody get somebody on the ice, blast down the ice and, um, you know, gets a breakaway, a transition breakaway. They score. That guy was on the ice for one shot on goal for his one shot attempt for his team. And then 20 by the other team, but his plus minus is plus one. And, to me, a stat like Corsi does a better job of explaining that, you know, yeah, he was on the ice for that one goal, and that's great, and the team might have won the game. But it's not like when he was on the ice in general, the team was doing anything good. And that's where a stat like Corsi and Fenwick, as you said, is basically just Corsi with block shots taken out of the equation. That's where it can provide value because it can show you really at its core it's showing a proxy for territorial dominance, which, you know, as much as people like to rag on the idea of advanced stats, you, know, you really break it down. And I don't think anyone, you know, even the, the, the biggest anti-stat person would argue that it's a good thing for a team to be outshot. And it's a good thing for a player to be on the ice and his team to be consistently outshot when he plays. So drill, drilling it down to that basic of a thing, if we agree that it's good to outshoot other teams, then we should all agree that it's good for players to be on the ice when the team is outshooting the other team. So is this something that we can reliably use to kind of evaluate players? Is it a, I don't want to say like end all be all kind of take it for gospel, but are there different ways to peek under the hood and kind of evaluate players, maybe predict breakouts or something close to the effect? 
I think there absolutely are. I, I would caution. I mean, no one, no one today uses like straight Corsi anymore. They use uh, some of the stats we'll get into later in the, you know, in our in our conversation. But you know, I certainly would caution anybody from just saying like, oh, this guy was plus, you know plus 70 shot attempts over the course of a season, that means he's a good player. There's way more that goes into it, but it does exactly what it says it is, which is it's showing whether a player was on the ice for more or less shot attempts than the other team had. So to that end, it's a very useful set because it shows you exactly what it says it shows. Now, if you want to actually you know, come up with is this guy going to break out? Just how valuable a player is? You have to go a lot deeper than just Corsi and Fenwick, but everything needs its base. Everything needs found needs its foundation. Everything needs its building blocks, and that's really what the concepts of Corsi and Fenwick are. So Corsi kind of seems like Corsi and Fenwick kind of seem like the the first step into you know just getting your feet wet into this kind of thing. And I'm going to jump right ahead to the Corsi four percentage, and I think this is kind of getting a little closer to what we might be looking for. I was reading in your article, you used uh, Michael Roffle and Sean Couture as examples. Now, where it can be misleading, and I see where you're coming from, is that Michael Roffle, say he was on the ice for six flyer shots, four from the Penguins against, that that puts Roffle at a plus two. Then you got Sean Couture, he was on the ice for 20 flyer shots and 16 Penguin shots, and that's a plus four Corsi. But when you kind of round everything out and you get that percentage, you got Roffle at 60% and, and Couture at like 55 and change here. So it kind of... On the surface, it looks like Couturier had a better game, but when you start looking at the percentages here, you can see that Raffle just had a better game offensively, or I'm not sure what to really take away from here. Is, is Corsi 4 something we should kind of ignore when we're on the waiver wire, or is there value to be had here when we're looking for guys like this? Because I think, uh, plain and simple, Sean Couturier is the guy I want on my fantasy team, not Michael Raffle. Yeah, and, and I just kind of named those guys in that article just to sort of put names to faces, not because I believe that Michael Raffles is a better player than Chuck yeah, Terry by sure. any means. The, the concept of, of Corsi 4 percentage really is just, think of it as just shot share. It's the same idea as, you know, in football, if the te- one team has the ball for 60% of the time and the other team has the ball for 40% of the time. It's the same concept except talking about shot attempts. So, uh, you know, if Raffle, when he was on the ice, the Flyers had six out of the 10 shot attempts that were taken, it's 60%. Whereas Clay, who's on the ice for probably more minutes, is going to have more shot attempts for both sides. And therefore, the equation is going to look a little different. That said, you know, is it something that fantasy people should be paying attention to? To a degree, I would say, yeah, because if a player is spending more time in the offensive zone than in the defensive zone, it probably means he's a good player. It probably means he's going to gain the trust of his coach, and it probably means he's going to get moved up the lineup. That said, I think if you're talking about fantasy hockey, and I say this not as an expert by any means of fantasy hockey, but my understanding, generally speaking, in the little I've played of it, is that you're looking for more or less players that score a lot. You know, they're the ones that rack up the points. Obviously, there's more nuance there. There's other categories. But you're looking for players that are racking up goals and assists and whatnot. Well, I wouldn't say that the percentages are necessarily the best thing to look at, aside from just trying to get an idea whether a player is good or bad. But one thing that I do think has value is looking at just the shot half of it. So, you know, Corsi 4, which would be like not Corsi 4 percentage, but Corsi 4, as in like, let's say Sean Gutierrez per 60 minutes of play averages when he's on the ice, his team averages 60 shot attempts per 60 minutes at 5 on 5. And let's say Michael Raffle, when he's on the ice, the Flyers average 52 shot attempts. Well, you probably want the guy who's on the ice for more 
average shot attempts in total because more shots over time is going to equal more goals. And Michael Roffel might actually have a better shot share because maybe when he's on the ice, the team is actually better defensively. So his shot share might be 55%, and Couturier's shot share might be 53%, because when Couturier is on the ice, the team's playing a more high-event game. They're taking more shots, and they're allowing more shots. But as a fantasy player, you're going to want the guy who's on the ice for more of his team's shots, because there's just more opportunities for pucks to go in, and therefore more opportunities for him to get points. So I would say Corsi 4 percentage is more just a good check from a fantasy perspective as to like how good a player is. And maybe whether he's going to keep his job in the lineup, whether he's going to keep that lofty spot on the top line. Whereas I would say, look at things like how many shot attempts on average a guy is on the ice for, or the shot half of Corsi four percentage. And that might give you an idea of, okay, well, you know, this guy is, is average on the ice for 62 shot attempts for 60 minutes, but he hasn't had that many points. Okay. Maybe there's a potential breakout here because maybe he's just kind of getting unlucky. And when the goals start coming for him and his teammates, when he's on the ice, they're going to it's going to be like the floodgates open up. So that would be where I say there that that's where a, uh, you know, Corsi four percentage or Corsi four can help. Certainly wouldn't say it's an end all be all, but it's just a way to, you know, try to find guys who are maybe underachieving but are poised for a breakout. It seems like something that kind of spells it out for you, whether or not they're spending, like you said, a shot share percentage, almost like they are in the offensive zone and, this is something that we're gunning for in fantasy hockey. The law of averages pretty much tells us that, you know, 60 shots over the course of 60 shots, five should go in around that kind. So, yeah, I think uh, Corsi 4 could be something that plays a small part into it. I think something that plays a bigger part, something that we should actually be gunning for even more is the expected goals for and expected goals. My first question here is going to be, why are there two of them? They seem like the same thing. Is one just like, a team aggregate and the other one is a individual. Is that how that's kind of defined there? Well, it's just different acronyms like XG expected goals is essentially just think of it as court as the, the basic form of Corsi, except the plus minus is expected goals plus minus. Whereas expected goals for percentage, same thing as Corsi for percentage. It turns it into, you know, expected goals share. So that's when you're talking about like 55%, 54%, 60%. And then if you're talking about just expected goals for per 60, that's where we get into the idea of, okay, when he's on the ice, how many expected goals on average per 60 minutes of play does the team generate? And again, this is where you're getting into like the best players tend to have high expected goals for per 60. Like I believe Connor McDavid's best years, you know, he's been at five on five, like every 60 minutes of play, his team's average about three expected goals for per 60 whereas like you know a a zach ronaldo might average 1.7 so you can guess that i mean obviously it doesn't take analytics to know this but you can guess that the Edmonton Oilers are going to score a lot more goals based on the expected goals and based on the volume of shots they're taking when mcdavid's on the ice versus the flyers or whatever team is stupidly employing zach ronaldo at this time when he's on the ice so it's just it's just a way to i think measure like one of the flaws of Corsi, and it's a, absolutely a, a limitation of the stat that people have brought up for years, is that it assumes every shot taken is of equal quality. It assumes that the shot from center ice that's basically just a dump in is of the same quality as a rebound chance from right in the crease area that's almost certain to get in, go in the back of the net. Well, the good thing about expected goals is that that, that shot from center ice by expected goals is probably like .001 worth of value, whereas... The, the rebound from the crease is probably like 0.6, which essentially means that there's a 60% chance it's going to become a goal. Whereas 
the shot from center ice, there's like a 0.1% chance it's going to be, become a goal. I mean, once in a while, Rakagudis might stumble into a goal like that, but <laughs> not going to happen that often. So expect a goal is the value of that, as you can tell. You can pinpoint the pl- players who, you know, maybe there's a lot of shots that are happening when he's on the ice, but there isn't a lot of quality. Like a, a guy who I, I think of when it comes to that, a guy like like uh, like Carl Hagelin. Carl Hagelin's on the ice for a lot of shots. His quality isn't nearly as high. Same thing with um, with uh, um, uh, Brady Kachuk. Brady Kachuk's been on the ice for a lot of shots in his career so far. His expected goals isn't that great because it's a lot of shots from distance, a lot of shots in the perimeter. And that's where expected goals, I actually think, can help out probably more than Corsi from a fantasy perspective because, if again, if you're trying to figure out who's going to have breakout. Who's going to score? Who's going to, you know, start racking up the the points overall from an individual player perspective? You want guys who either are helping to create or are just on the ice for a lot of high quality chances, and that's where expected goals can really help you out. So when we're looking at expected goals for it or expected goals, is there an average that we should almost assume that somebody's going to regress towards or away from or whatever? Is like if Brady Kachuk say he's at three expected goals and he should be really at like five, whatever the league average is, if there even is one, um, is there something that we can kind of earmark for for that when we're looking for sneaky pickup, somebody that needs to regress to the mean positively? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I think it really it depends on the player because there are some players who, you know, I would say that's probably most useful like in season. You know, let's say you're 20 games into a season and a guy by his expected goals is. His expected goals per you know per 60 minutes is something like 2.6. So he should be on the ice for 2.6 actual goals per 60 minutes he plays. But 20 games in the season, he's actually been on the ice for 1.8 actual goals per 60 minutes. That's a potential for okay, you know this guy's probably not doing that well from a raw points perspective, but. The underlying numbers look good. He's still producing offense. The team is still creating lots of chances when he's on the ice. Maybe there's a buy low opportunity there. However, if you're looking at a guy who for three consecutive seasons is underperforming his his expected goals, you know, a guy who he should be at 2.6, but he's actually a 2.1, you know, when you're talking about large sample sizes, you know, maybe it's not bad luck. Maybe it's just that either he's not that great of a finisher, you know, they're creating these chances, but he he's not that good at finishing the chances or he's on a line where he's on a line with guys who aren't that great finishers or he's on a team with guys that aren't that great finishers. So I would say early in a season is when it's best used to try to find out, you know, guys who might be smart pickups and especially when you're using it in tandem with past results. Like if a guy's always scored well before he's having a, a slow start, but you look at his underlying numbers and the team is producing just as many shots and just as many chances as they usually do with him on the ice it's probably going to regress to the mean and he's probably going to play better the rest of the year. A guy who consistently underperforms his underlying numbers from a shot and chance creation perspective, you might not want to jump through that hoop because that just might be who he is as a player. So skipping ahead here, you kind of teed me up for this one. I'm going to talk about on-ice shooting percentage and shooting percentage. I think when we're looking for those kinds of stats in season, on-ice shooting percentage and shooting percentage are more uh, blanket across the league where shooting percentage might be over the last couple of years, it's going up. It's it's closer to like 11 as far as league average go. We're seeing goalies save percentages drop, scoring's increasing right. across the league. Say, you know, Max Pacioretty, somebody who has historically been able to finish. He's he's a guy that can score goals and is good at it. If he's shooting like 4% and the on-ice shooting percentage is somewhere around the same, one could probably assume 
he's going to have somewhat of a, I don't want to call it a breakout, but he's going to catch up to what his expectations are. Is that something that kind of ties into expected goals like we were just talking about? I think it does to a degree. Um, it's probably best used in tandem with something like a you know on ice shooting percentage because there are some guys who you may look at their on ice shooting percentage and say that's way too low. You know that's that's abnormally low. That sh- you know he's going to regress. His team's going to start scoring more when he's on the ice. He's going to start scoring more when he's on the ice. But let's say a guy has an on ice shooting percentage of five percent, and you're thinking, okay, well league average is way higher than that. However. If you look at his expected goals, the team's not creating much in the way of dangerous chances when he's mm. on the ice. So maybe he actually deserves that low that low on ice shooting percentage because when he's been on the ice so far, the team's just taken all perimeter shots that don't have much of a chance of going in. So I would say that expected goals gives you, if you're looking at it correctly, it gives you more context to on ice shooting percentage, which I agree from a fantasy perspective is a really important stat. Expected goals. One more question on that. Are all models kind of the same? I don't know if like Corey Schneider or the evolving wild. Um, I know that's kind of like their. Yeah, the evolving wild. There's a couple um, XG models out there. You have the evolving wild uh, twins have their model. Natural Statric has a model. Uh, Money Puck has a model. Those are the three I think that get the most play. Corsica used to have a model, but that site shut down. Um, So those are the three that probably get the most play. Personally, I place the most stock in Evolving Wilds expected goal stat because they've done the most they've done the most public um, revealing of the the nuts and bolts of how they create their model. And I'm always going to trust models that the that the um, the creators have shared more about how it actually is built over models mm-hmm. where the people don't. And I'm not saying that I don't I totally distrust the 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 natural statric model. I'm not saying i totally trust the money puck model i think money puck actually has released um a decent amount of the uh you know kind of what's under the hood of their actually model and i don't think natural Statric is hiding anything i just don't think they've gotten around to it to really you know putting together a, a real uh, presentation essentially on how they created their model but i'm going to trust the one that i can know exactly how they create their model exactly how they characterize chances and rebounds and rush opportunities and things like that um that said yeah yeah, there are some fairly big differences between the between the three, and it you know that's where it does get a little bit tough as an outsider because it's like which one should I trust? Um, I just tend to go with you know I pick the one I trust the most, which is Evolving Wilds, <laughs> and that's the one I would recommend. Um, but there are differences. Like I think I think Money Puck's model has a little bit. They do this thing called like flurry adjustment, which essentially and it makes sense. It's it, it's a logical thing to do. Essentially, what they what they say is like situations where there's three rebounds, one right after another after another. The goalie stops all three, and and ex, an expected goal model that doesn't adjust for that might come to the conclusion that like those three shots add up to 1.2 goals, like expected goals. Mm-hmm. But in reality, like obviously you can only score one goal on that play because if the first rebound were to go in, then there's no need for the other two. So it like adjusts for those issues which I think is a totally fair adjustment to make. And those are the little tweaks that like some models don't think that's necessary. You know, I would assume that one of the reasons why a model wouldn't think that's necessary is because they don't want to lose the importance of giving credit to players. Like let's say James Van Riems like has three rebounds and he doesn't finish on all of them. I mean, yeah, theoretically he can't have more than one goal, but he still created those three rebounds. They still should get, he still should get credited for them from like how many expected goals he individually created so those are like the little differences between the models 
as I said, I go with Evolving Wild. That's the one I would recommend because it has the most under the hood that I've been able to see. And it shows you how the sausage is made. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I would say that, you know, I don't think any of them are bad. I'll, I'll put it that way. All right, fair enough. So one that I'm I'm curious about, I don't know if there's anything here for fantasy and anything, but uh, just blank relative to teammates, something you talked about in, in your articles on The Athletic, and it's just something that, I'm more curious in, and the, and the same thing could be said for score adjusted and what that kind of means. I, I I almost put it together as like like a game pace almost, or is, is there more to that one? Yeah, I would I would less call it game pace, and I, I would more call it team pace. But I I see where you're coming from with the idea of game pace. Basically, the the idea of of Corsi relative or and any of the stats, the relative metrics and the different variations of it is that some teams on average, are really good at driving play. And some teams, on average, are really bad at driving play. And there are situations where a player, let's say like a player on the Ottawa Senators can have a 49% Corsi 4 percentage. And then a a player on the Tampa Bay Lightning can have a 51% Corsi 4 percentage. But in reality, it's way more impressive for the guy on Ottawa to be at 49 than the guy on Tampa to be at 51. Because Tampa as a team average, averages 55% shot share, whereas Ottawa averages a 45% shot share. So that's where the relative metrics come into play because like, the guy on Ottawa is a plus four Corsi relative because when he's on the ice, the team is four percentage points better at driving play than when he's not. Whereas Tampa, the guy at 51%, would be a minus four Corsi relative because the team does four percentage points worse when he's on the ice at driving play than they do when he's on the bench so like that's kind of the one flaw of of kind of comparing apples to apples coursey four percentages across teams because some some players might look bad by the raw metric but they're actually improving the results of their teammates and some players may look good by the raw metrics but the team is doing worse with them on the ice so this seems like something where say in a fantasy world we it determines or at least shows that somebody is a play driver. And then that could eventually in the coach's eyes warrant a promotion to a better line, whether it go up to the second, third, whatever could come with more ice time, power play time, even at, you know, the, the end of the lane, but that kind of results in more fantasy points. So it, to me, it seems more like a, a watch list kind of stat, somebody that like you, you kind of put in your back pocket here. Yeah, I would say that. And, and as always, you know, the, the thing about these stats is there's always exceptions. Like classic example, Patrick Line. Patrick Line so far in his career has not graded out well most seasons as a play driver, even as a relative play driver to his teammates. You know, he's usually around break even to below break even, you know, below or around 50%. And relative to teammates, he doesn't do that well. His teammates drive play better when he's not on the ice. However, when you have the kind of shooting ability that Patrick Line has, you can get away with not having a great on-ice shot share because you're going to score more goals off the shots that you create than almost anybody in hockey so that's where like you can't be too fooled by somebody having a bad you know a bad Corsi four or a bad expected goals for percentage if the player in question is a naturally great shooter because then he's going to score goals in locations that other players just aren't going to have the shooting ability to do all right yeah that's something I, i never thought of there Okay, I want to move on to per 60 metrics, if you don't mind. So when I when I kind of um, 
when I'm digging under the hood at players, I like to look at shots per 60. And this is something that um, helps me kind of find diamonds in the rough. I always think back to Connor Garland. Now he had like almost 12 shots per 60 and was getting like 11 minutes time on ice. And then he gets a chance on the top line. And then all of a sudden he's putting like six shots on net. So this is kind of just something that I kind of have pegged as something that, that means a lot to me when I'm looking under the hood at kind of these advanced stats. Is there, is there anything more to this or is that just kind of cut and dry? Uh, no, I think it's pretty cut and dry. I, the only thing I would add is that this is where, you know, a stat like expected goals can really, you can really help, you know, because just as there are shots on goal for 60, there's individual expected goals for 60. There's players who they're racking up a ton of quality chances, but just not getting rewarded with the goals yet. And if they have a track record of, historically scoring a lot of goals by racking up a lot, a lot of chances and they're still racking up all the chances, but they're just not getting rewarded 20 games into the season. You can safely surmise that they're probably just getting unlucky and the floodgates are going to open up pretty soon. Um, so that's where I would say that like, you know, shots on goal, absolutely valuable. Um, same thing with shot attempts, you know, absolutely valuable per 60. But this is where I think a stat like expected goals really can help because then you're not just looking at, did he take, shots on goal you're looking at the quality of the shots and then Mm. that probably gives you a better understanding of whether he's really poised for a breakout um one that i've not been able to wrap my head around i think i'm starting to grasp it i know that it works but i don't know why it works pdo uh it always winds up to be a hundred percent and i don't really grasp why i think part and parcel because you know if if one game let's say calgary we're flyers are going up against calgary calgary's goalie David Riddich has a 900 save percentage that can only assume that um, that f- the Flyers had a 10% shooting percentage over the course of a season. You see games that have like 115, 117 PDO. I'm thinking back to like the, the Chicago Blackhawks, their crazy stretch this year where they were just putting up like 118s consistently at the end of the year. How does it kind of all meet back to 100? It's an interesting question. And I think the, the only answer is that that it just kind of tends to turn out that way. Like there's nothing inherent to the idea of, um, you know, of PDO. I don't think that's like, well, it has to always end up at this spot. Um, it's just kind of, that's what people found that, it, that everything tends to regress to a hundred. Um, and yeah, you're right in that, like, because, you know, 8% a shooting percentage equals 92% save percentage on the other side. That's why in the end it does even out, but it doesn't necessarily show you why, like, at the end of the year, most teams fall in a very, very thin range, usually between like a 99 PDO and a 101 PDO. Theoretically, there could be some teams that could hold a 90 PDO and some teams that could hold a 110. It's just that I think because hockey is so tight, the NHL is so tight of a sport in terms of there usually aren't absolutely horrific teams. and There usually aren't absolutely amazing teams that that's why it tends to fall in that, that tight range. That said, you know, and, and I'm not saying I don't, I don't check PDO. I absolutely do. You know, I think it has value as a a quick check stat to see if a guy is really as good as, say, his plus minus or a team is really as good as their crazy record and vice versa. If a guy is really as bad as his plus minus, if a team is really as bad as their record. That said, you know, it's probably the the better way if you're looking at on ice shooting, well, shooting percentage and save percentage kind of in isolation. Because thing is, is that there are some teams that have the sh- shooting talent to sustain higher than average shooting percentages and there absolutely are teams that have the goalie talent to sustain higher than average save percentages over the course of a year like 
you're not going to punish, you know, the late 90s Buffalo Sabres are having a sky-high PDO because they had one of the best goalies of all time in Dominic Hasek. Like, it's not—you can't just look at, the, oh, they had 103 PDO. That's destined to regress. Like, yeah. no, it's not destined to regress because they have the best goalie in hockey. Like, same thing with some of those Rangers teams with Lundqvist. Like, no, it wasn't going to regress because Lundqvist was just that damn good. However, like, if, you, if, if you're looking at a team that—like, classic example would be the Rangers of this year. The Rangers of this year, there was a period early in the year where they were like, I think their shooting percentage was something like 13%. And you looked at their roster as particularly up front, and you were like, there's no way that that's sustainable. They just don't have the talent. Like, if if Tampa Bay is shooting 12%, you can say, all right, you know, maybe they're not going to keep shooting 12%, but they're probably going to easily clear 10 because they have like three lines of absolute studs <laughs> yeah. but like if you know if you're if your top line center is ryan strom you're probably not going to be able to hold a 13 percent shooting percentage over the course of an entire season so you know there's an element of yeah just do the quick check and see if teams are in that like tight 99 to 101 range and if they're too low or too too high they're probably going to you know, regress to the mean, but you have to have common sense too. You have to know a little bit about the goalie situations of the team. You have to know a little bit about the shooting talent of the team and then just kind of use your, your common sense with the stats you're looking at and come to a, a logical conclusion. I think one that I, I use most often is Calgary from two seasons ago where David Riddich was putting up like sub 900 and they were shooting at like 14%. They wound up with like a 104 PDO and then you see all the players that were on the top power play unit kind of you're going from Mark Giordano and his Norris campaign to like a 44 point pace this year. And and people in our leagues are like drafting him super high. And I'm like, dude, all the red flags are there. You kind of got to watch out for these things. And I think that's where it kind of comes into play with fantasy is it at the end of a year when going into making your rankings, stuff like that. You might be able to, like you said, use your common sense and find these teams that don't really fit the mold of of a high PDO. All right. Uh, I'm trying to see if we missed any here. I think that's all of it, man. So I don't know if, uh, if you got a minute, I can pick your brain on Travis Konechny. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. he, he's somebody that I took, uh, I think I took him in the second round. We have a 24 team dynasty draft. Um, I needed him. I needed him on my team. He's quickly becoming my favorite player. I was a big, uh, Claude Giroux fan. We named a sandwich after him at our restaurant. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, we the Claude Rubin. It's great. If you ever see him, tell him to come in. I'd love to meet nice. him. <laughs> I'll buy him a nice. sandwich. That's um, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Travis Konechny, the, the year that he had last year was insane. And it was, it was a blast watching him, um, going back, you know, on Instagram, the flyers are putting up their top 10, you know, highlights and, and seven of them are from Travis Konechny. And it just seems wow. like something that I can't, I can't put my money in. I can't put my eggs in the basket, but I have, and I want to know that, um, did we see a ceiling for Travis Konechny this year, or is this something that he can do from year to year? Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting question. Um, I think, you know, we, we actually, I think we had this conversation on BSH Radio a few weeks ago. I My projection for Konechny is that he's going to kind of be like, from a, you know, from a year-over-year points perspective, he's going to kind of be like the next Jake Voracek, where like, mm. like his really good years are like point per game, 85 points. And then his down years are going to be like 60, 65 points. So, and I think he's going to kind of swing between the two. The one thing that Konechny does have going for him, you know, over someone like Voracek is that I do think Konechny is actually a true talent plus shooter. Like I 
think he can sustain an above league average shooting percentage. Whereas Voracek, like he had that one year, I think the lockout year where he shot like 18% and then every other year of his career, he's been around nine. Like you, you just watch him. You can tell he's not like a pinpoint accuracy shooter. He has that, that shovel shot that like is more just like him passing the puck into the net more than anything. <laughs> Whereas like Konechny actually can pick corners. So I think that probably will, you know, his ability to, to beat goalies clean more often. I think that probably gives him a little bit higher of a, floor especially because in fancy hockey goal scoring is so important because it's it's more rare than than assist production um that said you know the one thing that does worry me a little bit about Konechny is that the thing that kept his point production down going into this season before this season was that he never had time on the top power play unit he was on the second power play unit and the flyer second power play unit was absolute trash well he got on the top power play unit this year and they started using him as the net front guy. And granted, they they did more things with him and with the formation. They had they popped him below the red line sometimes. They had him move up in a Giroux spot when Giroux was below the below the goal line. Like they did some things where he wasn't just a net front guy. But that was his path to getting on the top unit because you've got the defenseman up top, you've got Giroux on, on the one half boards, you got Voracek on the other half boards, and then you've got a lefty shot ideally as the the guy in the middle in the slot area taking one timers. So there just wasn't a logical spot to put Konechny until they were like, why don't we try him at net front? We'll see if that works. And it did. That said, Konechny's still, what, like 5'10", 185? Like, yeah. there's a chance that he doesn't stay at net front forever, especially if a guy, you know, like a, I don't know, you know, a Nolan Patrick gets healthy. He can play the net front. And he, if he breaks out, maybe he pushes him out of that PP1 spot. You know, maybe a Wade Allison, a Tanner Lazin. You know, guys that have size and have that ability to potentially succeed at a net front spot, if they were to push him out of that spot, maybe he has to go back, back down to, to power play two, and maybe that hurts his raw point total. So that would be my only concern with Konechny. But, you know, as a 5-on-5 five five scorer, he's been great for the past three seasons. So I don't think that production is going anywhere. It's just a matter of, number one, is he going to keep scoring goals at the rate he's scoring? And I think he will. And then number two, does he keep that spot on the top pass? power play unit that that would be my worry but if he's one of the top scoring forwards on the flyers you would think they'll find some way to get him on the top power play unit so i like him as a as a, as a future investment in fantasy leagues but there is that one concern about does he keep that spot of the top power play i got uh taylor zinski as number two in my queue so i'm hoping hoping he pans out we were uh my co-host and i went to the the uh the rookies three on three tournament i think Jesus, three, four years back, and Lazinski was one of the guys that kind of blew my hat off and never really uh, never gave up on him. And signing that ELC has been pretty huge, and I think I'm going to pull the trigger the next round. Got him and uh, Noah Gregor lined up. But all right, man, thank you so much for being on. One more time, Charlie O'Connor from The Athletic covering the Flyers. You're at Charlie O underscore Con. And if there's anything else, man, one more time, let the people know where they can find you. Uh, yeah, so on, on Twitter, as you said, I cord, you know, two, three, even four shows sometimes a week on BSH Radio, and you can find my articles on theathletic.com. Well, right on, man. Charlie, I hope you enjoy the rest of your night, man. Thank you so much for hopping on with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was cool. All right, guys, that was our interview with Charlie O'Connor. Great talk and great guy. Great taste in music. You guys should check him out over at BSH Radio, especially if you're Flyers fans. These guys are hilarious. You got Henkel, 
Stephalicious D, Billy Matz, and Charlie himself. And every once in a while, I'll have some guests on there uh, in their kind of um, umbrella of podcasts, mostly geared towards the Flyers, entirely geared towards the Flyers. I listen to them often, uh, as you might have guessed. But anyway, that is it. So that's it for us. You guys can find us at FHF Hockey on Twitter. You guys can join our Discord. Still kind of, you know, we're still active there. And uh, feel free to chirp me on Twitter if you got anything going. And, uh, yeah, we'll catch you guys next time. We love you.